This week's TribCast is sponsored by the University of Texas at Austin. As Texas's leading research university, UT prepares students to do research that impacts Texas's economy, cultural life, and natural treasures. Find out more at impact.utexas.edu. And Texas Motion Picture Alliance. Our Texas media production industry is a key component to diversify our economy, adding countless jobs and economic impact throughout the state. Support Texas media production. We produce great returns. Visit txmpa.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for March 10th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week I'm joined by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Higher Education Reporter Kate McGee. Hello. And Politics Reporter Cassie Pollock and her dog. Hello. <laughs> We're obviously our viewers cannot see this, but Cassie's dog is attacking her hand right now as we talk. So if you hear her, that is uh, that is what. Um, as we speak today, it is Wednesday, which means it is the first day since July 2nd of last year that in Texas you can be in public without a mask. You can also pretty much expect no capacity restrictions on businesses. Restaurants, bars, sports venues, and much more can operate at 100% capacity now. Um, this comes as about 4,700 people in Texas remain in hospitals with the coronavirus, which is way down from a peak that was you know, practically triple that in January. Uh, right now, we're averaging around 167 deaths per day due to the virus. And you know, the reason that there is no mask order is because Governor Greg Abbott has decided that there is no mask order. And in Texas right now, in these emergency situations, he is the decider. He declared last week that it was time to 100% reopen Texas. And so we are, you know, pretty close to 100% reopened, um, at least as far as what the law requires. Um, you know, I would say not a lot of people were thrilled by that announcement. You heard from Democrats and local officials who said it was, you know, going too far too soon to lift the mask order. Uh, meanwhile, on the activist swing on the party, you heard a lot of people about, you know, kind of what took you so long? Why, why didn't he get rid of this mask order months before? Um, but that's the result of when a governor has this much power over the emergency procedures in the state. And that's kind of what we want to talk about today. Cassie, you've been following this. It seems as though some legislators are interested in maybe not allowing Abbott to have that much power. Can you tell us a little bit about the movement afoot in the Texas legislature? Yeah, I mean, I'd say for roughly the past year, there's been a conversation kind of playing out uh, on both you know, Republican and, and uh, Democratic sides of the aisle to hear about uh, whether the legislature needs uh, to uh, you know, reform um, the governor's emergency powers during a disaster. And so um, slowly but surely, we've kind of seen the House and Senate since uh, everyone gaveled in in January file uh, proposals. Um, and, you know, there have been some differences that have emerged between the two chambers uh, naturally on the issue. Um, and the House, uh, 
Uh, Speaker Dade Phelan has earmarked House Bill 3 uh, being carried by uh, State Representative Dustin Burroughs, a Lubbock Republican, um, that would basically address the governor's emergency powers during a pandemic. Uh, the bill, uh, as filed, carves pandemics out from future disaster declarations, such as a hurricane or um, other natural disaster. And um, uh, last night, actually, ahead of a Thursday committee hearing uh, on the bill, uh, you know, we obtained a uh, updated draft version of the legislation, which notably would create a, a pandemic disaster legislative oversight committee, a, a 10 member board here, you know, with the Lieutenant Governor, House Speaker and various Senate and House chairs that would uh, under circumstances be able to uh, terminate a, a, a governor's disaster declaration uh, if it's been in effect for more than 30 days. So um, that piece of legislation seems to be at least what the speaker and other house uh, members of house leadership are trying to rally the lower chamber um, around. And in the Senate, the conversation hasn't really centered around uh, one particular piece of legislation. They, uh, you know, uh, just at first glance, uh, the upper chamber seems to be taking more of a, a piecemeal approach. Um, but one bill that has kind of stood out to me, uh, it was filed last week by Brian Birdwell, a Granbury Republican, uh, would essentially uh, give, uh, would require the governor to convene a special session to extend any sort of disaster declaration, whether it's a pandemic related or not, past 30 days. Um, and 14 other senators, including three Democrats, have also signed on uh, to that uh, legislation. So that's kind of where we're at uh, with the emergency powers conversation. I think um, tomorrow uh, during the House State Affairs Committee hearing on HB3, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get an updated look or maybe the closest look yet at how uh, more House members, you know, Democrats, uh, other, other Republican members feel about uh, that kind of a proposal. Yeah, you know, what stands out to me a little bit about this is you mentioned 14 other senators who have signed on to Birdwell's legislation. That's, uh, that would at make the total 15 out of 31, practically a majority. Of course, Senate rules would require a little bit more of a majority for this to get to the floor and actually be voted on. And then on the other hand, uh, in the House, you mentioned this, this piece of legislation that is written by Dustin Burroughs uh, is House Bill 3. And that is a signal from the speaker, you know, basically a high bill number, the, the speaker in the House and the Senate, uh, Lieutenant Governor in the Senate set aside kind of those top bill numbers to designate for their top priorities. So for that legislation to have a three on its name is an indication that it's something that the speaker is interested in doing and, and seems to be putting his support behind. And so what we're seeing here is, you know, support from different directions for doing something in a way that ultimately when it boils down to is support for kind of taking away power from the Republican governor in the state, a governor who, you know, for much of his tenure has been a very popular governor is what is Abbott's reaction then to this? You know, Abbott at the beginning of session when he was giving his state of the state address uh, indicated uh, a willingness or an openness to at least having a, a conversation with lawmakers about reforming his emergency powers. Uh, you know, there haven't been uh, too many details coming from his office uh, since he uh, made those remarks about what he would be open to reforming uh, and what he, you know, would consider off limits in terms of legislation that he'd be willing to sign. 
Um, I kind of glossed over this briefly when I was giving a broad overview of House Bill 3, but I think what's interesting there is it would, uh, you know, it, it, it's a sweeping proposal, right? We have everything from religious liberty protections to, uh, you know, Second Amendment issues, and, you know, we have some voting rights uh, things in this, in this bill as it's, uh, as it's current, you know, the current version that we're looking at, uh, but it would only apply to pandemics. Um, you know, the, the Birdwell measure and, and other uh, pieces of legislation that had been filed in the Senate, uh, you know, would, would apply to disasters, right? So, uh, you know, hurricanes, um, I'm trying to think of, you know, others, other disaster declarations that have been issued when it's not really re related to a hurricane or a pandemic over the past year. But uh, that to me is just something that I- There's I think one is, winter storm you may remember. Oh man, <laughs> oh, I had already forgotten about that one. Well, see, it gets up to 70 degrees and everybody's blithely going about their business. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, that to me is just interesting, right? Because sure. uh, who knows when, uh, knock on wood, you know, knock, knock, um, who knows when the next pandem pandemic is, is going to hit the state or when everyone, uh, you know, uh, when, assuming that everyone gets, gets uh, past the coronavirus. But, uh, you know, uh, hurricanes are, uh, uh, seem to happen every year or every season. And um, I don't know, just the, the, the two kind of scopes of, of uh, those two measures that I've been talking about seem interesting. Definitely, yeah. Hopefully it's some legislation that will not be relevant for another hundred years. You know, we, we don't have to worry about this with another pandemic coming soon. But it, even if that's true, I think the politics, Ross, of this are interesting. I mean, this is a situation where, you know, it's hard not to look at this as a judgment of how Abbott has handled these things in the past. I mean, I know that there are always kind of tensions between the various branches of government over power and oversight ability, but, but should we see this as a rebuke of Abbott? Uh, yeah, to some extent. I think the seeds of this were planted back in the very first days of the Abbott argument with Sherry Luther over, you know, can you open your hair salons in Dallas? Has the governor overstepped his... Uh, powers in closing businesses back there when uh, flattening the curve was the phrase of the day. And, um, you know, that this sort of um, idea of controlling the virus on one hand or on one end of the scale versus, you know, hurting the economy on the other end has been a running theme throughout the pandemic, at least since, you know, late April of last year. So, you know, I think it starts there, the right wing or the conservative end of the Republican Party, uh, the libertarian end maybe of the Republican Party, has been really mad at Abbott for doing anything at all. And, you know, you mentioned it a minute ago, a lot of those folks are in the mode of this is too little too late, he should never have done these things in the first place. And that's why we're mad at him. And that's why he's got, you know, potential opposition from people like former Senator Don Huffines, Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller, um, surprisingly, the chairman of his own party. Um, some of those people are really hollering at him about it. And then Democrats are on the other end, hollering at him for not keeping things locked down enough. So, you know, the this is one of those things. Um, there's an old uh, Jim Hightower line. The only thing in the middle of the road are yellow stripes and dead armadillos and, and the governor of Texas. Right, right. And I think you touched on something that I think is a challenge of this. There seems to be a fairly broad consensus, maybe not unanimous, but a fairly broad consensus that among legislators that they want to do something in this area. 
but there are a lot of people coming at this from a lot of different directions, uh, whether it is the Democrats who I think would like to see more control, more power go to the locals, uh, the big city mayors who, you know, we saw last night, the city of Austin trying to kind of insist that they were still going to have a mask order, even though Abbott has taken away their power to enforce it. And then on the other side, you've got the, the kind of King Abbott people, the people who are acting like, who are saying that Abbott is acting like a monarch and who say that, that no one should have the power to kind of take away the rights of businesses to open their doors or, or the right of people to choose for themselves whether they want to wear a mask or not. Uh, so, I mean, Cassie, am I right in thinking that, okay, yes, a lot of people want to do something here, but, but maybe it's, the, the devil is going to be in the details? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you've already kind of just to go back to House Bill 3, um, you know, it's already drawn opposition from some of the, uh, you know, further right wing Republicans that Ross was mentioning. And it's um, also seemed to draw some criticism from Democrats, too, since, uh, you know, again, as as written, it would affirm the governor's ability to to suspend state laws during a pandemic and also allow for the preemption of local orders issued by county judges or mayors if they're if they happen to be with uh, inconsistent with state orders. And so that's going to be, I think, a big point a big sticking point for Democrats, uh, just in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the conversation that we, uh, again, have been, uh, you know, that, that's his, that has been present for the past year about, uh, you know, having, equipping local officials with, with more jurisdiction or having the ability to be able to do what they think is best in, you know, Harris County or Dallas County or whatnot. HB3 is also a bargaining chip, you know, um, we're in the middle of a legislative session. We've got about 90 days left. They haven't really done anything. None of that's particularly unusual, but we're in the, <clears throat> in the, excuse me, in the part of the legislative session where things accelerate and everybody's got something on the table and HB3 is a bargaining chip if you're trying to get something with the governor. You know, we're trying to figure out how much to restrict your future activities. But before we do that, let's talk about my bill. Um, so, so they've got that in front of them. Um, and he's also, you know, on the other hand, Abbott has the ability to play the people who want to limit his powers against each other. Um, you know, the, the people on the far right of the Republican Party and the people on the, in the Democratic Party, you know, aren't, aren't used to getting together over, you know, barbecue and working out a deal to hose a Republican governor. I don't know how that's going to go. Yeah, I do wonder if some of this might be a be careful what you wish for situation for lawmakers. Uh, some might not realize how good they have it to not have to kind of share the blame for, for what has been happening in this state over the past year and the incredibly difficult decisions that Abbott has had to make, where you're basically weighing people's health versus their economic prospects. And you know, we have seen time and time again that there is no way to make people happy about the situation that they're in. So what's the next step here, Cassie? I mean, we go to the, the House committee and I, I suspect there are still lots of twists and turns that could happen with this legislation. Yeah, so tomorrow the House State Affairs Committee, uh, I believe, just got a notice for them actually, they're meeting at 8 a.m. tomorrow um, for, for everyone who's an early bird out there. Uh, uh, consider, you know, HB3, a number of other bills. Uh, doesn't sound like committee is going to vote anything out tomorrow. So that bill will be left pending in committee. Um, as Ross said, things are just now kind of starting to pick up. It's, um, 
you know, so, you know, we could see that the committee vote on this bill, maybe in the next week or so, uh, voted out would get referred to another uh, to, you know, the House and uh, calendars committee for potentially getting put on a calendar where it could be debated, before, you know, before the entire chamber. But, um, you know, on the Senate side, I think it's just a little bit less clear what ends up happening. Um, I have not recently checked in on um, a number of Dan Patrick's priorities part of the 31 legislative priorities, whether they've been filed or referred to committees, a number of those were dealing with pandemic related responses. And uh, as of this morning, when I was checking a, a couple hours ago, uh, the two Birdwell measures that I referenced earlier um, had not yet been referred to a committee for consideration. Sure. Uh, you know, there's also not a Senate companion to House Bill 3, which I think is pretty notable, again, just given the fact that, uh, you know, House Bill 3 is has as low of a bill number as it does. So. <laughs> excuse me Rob. <laughs> excuse me sorry about that that's how it goes welcome welcome to austin mold yeah exactly uh ross you know one just kind of broader question for you about the legislative session so far you, we talk about how there hasn't been a senate companion uh to this bill that seems to be somewhat of a trend to me we haven't seen a lot of kind of unified the big three coming out and saying we're working together on this bill or this bill you know the the hb3 is an example of that we saw uh abbott up in uh tyler earlier this week advocating for a bill that is um related to social media censorship and punishing uh social media companies for censoring folks for their political views. That was a Senate bill. Um, it's been identified as a Dan Patrick priority, but Dan Patrick was not there with the rollout. It was just Abbott and the Senator who wrote it. Any sign that these folks aren't really on the same page at this point, anything we should be reading into that? Well, I think, you know, it's less a sign that they're not on the same page so much as it is a sign that um, they're not showing signs that they are on the same page. Yeah. You know, usually they go out of their way to say, you know, so-and-so has got a bill and I'm with him or her on that, and so-and-so's got a bill, and I'm against him or her on that. Um, you see a lot of that sort of moving around, and this time, they're just kind of flinging stuff at the wall, and uh, I think there's a tendency here. Some of this is trying to see what they can get attention for. You know, people keep reverting their attention back to the big things that the legislature doesn't control. Let's talk about the coronavirus and vaccines and freezes and, you know, um, elections and, you know, all of this kind of stuff and tossing up, you know, social issues, let's let, let's all go out and spank Facebook, you know, is a little bit of a hard sell right now, just because of the attention on everything else. The governor has been trying to do that himself. I mean, you know, he was mired in a conversation that wasn't going well for him on the freeze and he changed the subject, you know, maybe he was going to do it anyway, but he changed the subject with the mask thing and then went down to the border this week to talk about immigration. Um, neither one of those has much to do with ERCOT, you know, but um, we'll see if we'll see if they can pull attention around. And the only issues that seem to have full attention of everybody, the ones that can um, threaten them politically or reward them politically are the big ones that I mentioned. You know, if you can figure out a way to get everybody vaccinated, that's going to be good news for everybody in office. If you can figure out a way to make electricity in Texas reliable during a winter storm without making the costs sky high, that's going to be a win. But it's not going to be like you walked in here and said, hey, I'm, you know, I've got a bunch of stuff to toss out to people that we talked about during the election. I, I just think it's a kind of subdued session and 
you don't see um, people forming up in little bands to promote particular issues. Yep. I didn't know that a subdued session was a thing that could exist until this year. And we'll see whether it continues over the next three months. Friday is the halfway mark, or no, not the halfway mark, the 60-day mark for the legislative session, which means usually when the action picks up and we'll see whether it does. I've, I've done a bunch of these and they haven't let me down yet. So we'll see. <laughs> I, know. I was going to say we have 83 days left or 84 days left. So there's, there's a lot that can still happen. I'm getting Plenty of popcorn time. ready. Plenty of time. Well, we'll be ready for it when it does. Let's take a break though, to hear from our sponsors. Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, meeting the healthcare needs of almost 3 million people and helping to lead collaborative research. More at ttuhsc.edu slash support dash healthcare. And Pastors for Texas Children, mobilizing the faith community for great public schools. Learn more at pastorsfortexaschildren.com. Okay, so last week we had a nice talk about the eyes of Texas and the controversy that it was generating on campus. And one thing that we mentioned was that we were awaiting a report from the university on the history of that song and whether or not it has certain racist or, uh, you know, ra racist history or, or issue problematic history that should be addressed by the university. Kate, that report came out yesterday. You uh, quickly raced through it to get a story up. Tell us a little bit about what the conclusions they found were. Yeah, so they found that, yes, the song did premiere at a minstrel show, likely in uh, students were performing in blackface, but they didn't find any primary documents that linked the phrase the eyes of, the, of Texas or the eyes of the South to General Robert E. Lee, as previously stated. Um, people were really concerned about that connection. Um, and they said they couldn't find anything that, you know, showed that that was the case. And that, you know, the real headline was that the report said they didn't, they concluded there was no racist intent with the song, that the students were really trying to make fun of the university president at the time, President Prather. But they said that, you know, it did come out of a time and an event that was extremely racist and there was prevalent racism. Um, but that they shouldn't hide from that and the school should kind of use the song to own that history and start having some difficult conversations about how racism and has perpetuated into some of the problems we see on campus today, including, you know, a low black student enrollment, etc. Um, so, you know, some students said that the fact that it was performed in blackface is still a problem to them and not enough to make them feel comfortable singing the song. You know, others, I think, looked at this report, who others who support the song, you know, looked at this report and it affirmed everything they were arguing. The song was not racist. It's supposed to be this kind of unifying song. And that's that. I mean, I think what remains to be seen, the report had 40 recommendations for the 40 acres on how to use this to kind of start conversations. What kind of remains to be seen is if this is the start of some tough conversations on campus or if this is kind of the punctuation mark on a, you know, tense controversy that the school's been dealing with for the past year. Yeah, I mean, the thing that really kind of stood out to me in reading your story, Kate, was that every, it kind of affirmed what everyone was already saying in their own minds, you know, uh, the, the, the statement saying, you know, there was no racist intent, I think 
could cause a lot of the defenders to really kind of latch on to that phrase and say, look, you know, this proves that there's no problem. We can move on here. And, and then the people that were upset about this, it basically affirmed everything that they were upset about, that, that this has ties to a minstrel show, that, okay, maybe the lyrics were not specifically intended to be racist, but they appear to have been first sung by people wearing blackface. And, and okay, maybe it's not specifically, cannot be documented that the, the eyes of Texas was a phrase kind of tied to General Robert E. Lee, but it was tied to members of the Confederacy. Right. Did, is there any indication that this has changed anyone's mind? Has it any indication that this is going to change the conversation around this at all? I don't think so. I mean, I think the school will use this to continue to sing the song. And, you know, some of the recommendations are, which I thought were interesting, were, you know, to have conversations about this at orientation to create a class where students learn specifically about the history of the eyes of Texas. And even one where they want to play a video of the history at Longhorn football games, which I thought was an intro would be an interesting um, just experience to have based on this controversy. Um, I do think that uh, a lot of the students who we spoke with were not surprised with the, the fact that it said there was no racist intent and kind of see this as the way for the university to continue singing the song and justify singing the song and just kind of shrugged their shoulders at it and said, we're going to continue to still fight to get them to change it. But I think that's might be an uphill climb given what, what we saw in the report. Right, because, if, oh, go ahead, Ross. I think if this is a punctuation mark, it's a comma. You know, this, this thing keeps going. And now you put everybody in the position of singing an unintentionally racist song. You know, uh, now that the intent is known, you're sort of, you know, you're back in, in that conversation. Should we sing a song that, you know, maybe it wasn't intended to be this way, um, but here we are and it is this way and here we are still singing it. I don't know how that gets them out of the fix they're in. And I'm also struck, and you know, this is institutional and it's not just universities that do this, but they sure have dragged this thing out. And, and they've been, you know, they, they set up a situation where, you know, they, they might have hurried this and gotten essentially the same report in August before they started a second season with the football team and the band on this. But they went through months and months more of it and let their opposition gain steam and gain support. And they've got football players speaking out now who weren't speaking out before. It just seems like you're going to have to get to a point where you actually have to uh, not coast along and let both sides argue about it. You're going to have to make a call and whichever call you make is going to um, leave a lot of people out. Well, right, Kate. And I, I mean, I think ultimately what we've heard from the relatively new president of the university, Jay Hartzell, and the quite new football coach is that they have sort of made up their mind, right? That they're, they intend on still singing it and correct me if I'm wrong, but also intend to expect the band to play it and the football players to remain on the field while it's being sung, right? Right. I think the, que the question about whether they need to remain on the field for this next season remains to be seen. I mean, the president was very adamant yesterday that this, no student will be forced to, to sing it. But the players I spoke with last week for my story, 
said that even have being forced to stay on the field was a demoralizing experience for them, not even if they didn't sing the song at the time. So I think, you know, the problem for UT is that every Saturday they're going to have to, everyone's going to be looking at what's going to happen with the eyes of Texas this week. And it's just going to be a repetitive issue that they can't really shy away from unless they, you know, what stop playing football, which is never going to happen. So I think that this is something that will continue to drag on um, that like Ross said. I think we can all agree that what will not happen is that they will stop <laughs> playing football. I feel confident in that bit. Very good. Okay. Well, thank you, Kate, for that update. It's, it's been an interesting saga. And like you say, I think we will probably hear more about this in the future. That just about does it for us this week. I want to say thank you to Ross, Kate, and Cassie. Thank you to Justin, our producer. And thank you to our sponsors, the University of Texas at Austin, TXMPA, Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, and Pastors for Texas Children. We'll see you all next week. You would never use. Do I have to talk you